RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, we are happy that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. And if we can give you an hour to take your mind off of the craziness that is what's going on right now in so many ways, uh, I really hope that this will help you uh, think about something else other than the obvious uh, we're going to talk to Mickey J. It's an interesting perspective of his journey through championship wrestling from Florida and um, and world championship wrestling with me and then WWE. Uh, interesting perspective through his eyes of a referee and how he saw things. And uh, talk about his battle with cancer, which unfortunately seems to be a recurring theme. But the good part of the recurring theme is we have these people here to talk about their battles uh and their victories knock on wood so uh interesting story uh situation that i did not know uh even though i'm pretty good friends with mickey and uh, uh so i just found out today so that should be fun uh just got back from uh nashville tennessee more uh, uh impact wrestling got some good stuff uh in the can if you watch uh you're gonna be uh you're gonna, I think you're going to be uh, excited. If you do not watch, uh, you could check it out uh, with yours truly as the ring announcer each and every Tuesday at 8 o'clock Eastern on Axis TV, my favorite channel, which has all kinds of – if you're a rock and roll fan or a country music fan and you get access, uh, check out. There's a lot to DVR, great live music, and uh, then uh, Impact Wrestling on Tuesdays at – uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time. So lots of fun stuff. Worked hard, but uh, it was nice to get uh, my mind off of everything and just kind of focus on the wrestling business. It's always fun to see everybody. So uh, I want to thank them for that. And uh, did get to watch before I left the All Elite Wrestling pay-per-view, Double or Nothing. And uh, overall, big thumbs up for me. Uh, thought it was very, very entertaining. There Some parts, I, I was behind uh, so there's some a couple of matches I fast forward through. I won't say which ones. Uh, I will tell you that the latter match scared the ever living crap out of me, and it's getting to the point where top this is going to get somebody hurt. Uh, there were several times that I was concerned about uh, things that I saw and people that I know or don't even know uh, getting hurt. So uh, I, 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 you know, I like top this, and I know top this is 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 what's in right now, but. Someday top this is somebody's going to get hurt. And and so that scares me. I'll be on, totally honest with you. Uh, maybe tone the top this part down uh, of the show a little bit. Um, I uh, love the MJF Jungle Boy match. And just every time I see Jungle Boy, it freaks me out as somebody who grew up watching 90210 uh Back in the heyday, it freaks me out how much he looks like his father. And it's really sad how much his father would probably, uh, as a father I know, would, would love to see his success. And really, really enjoyed that match. And, um, of course, the stadium stampede was off the charts. Uh, one of the funnest, uh, however many, 40 minutes, 30 minutes that I've had in a long time, other than being there at Impact Wrestling doing my thing. But um, great match, great, great stuff that they had in there. 
Uh, I know that they filmed that uh, the night before till about six o'clock in the morning. I was texting with Jericho a little bit and uh, afterwards and uh, some some really good stuff in there. And so and I, I have not gotten to watch it yet, but I know they, they filmed a big uh, a big schmoz with him and Mike Tyson. Uh, it's on my DVR, but I have not got to watch it yet because I just got back from Nashville, Tennessee. And um so, yeah, thumbs up big time to that and a big time thumbs up to the company for the stadium stampede match. We I know we spoke to Sammy Guevara right before that uh, that match on this podcast, and he said he wanted to jump off a stadium. I thought he was kidding. Uh, he basically got thrown off a stadium by Kenny Omega and uh, probably about 20 feet down. So uh, when he said that, I thought he was just playing, but uh, it, was, it was certainly entertaining, and um, I'm sure – uh, everybody involved was super thrilled with how it ended up because it got a great reaction to that. So, um, so kudos to that company. Uh, interesting to note that uh, WWE finally relented and and has uh, has NXT stars at least the last I saw at their tapings uh, doing the sort of the same thing AEW does uh, with their. Uh, as close to fans as it could be. So as we start to come out of this thing, and hopefully knock on wood, we do start to come out of this. It would be, will be interesting to see how wrestling resumes with a somewhat live audience. Uh, interesting to see how life re- resumes with a somewhat live audience. Uh, so well, some, that'll give us something to look forward to. And uh, there'll be a moving picture. I'm sure as, as uh, you know, our new reality sets in, but uh Great show for those guys, and look forward to watching the uh, follow-up AEW Dynamite that I have on DVR. So with that, let's talk to a longtime friend and somebody whose journey is a little bit different from many of the wrestlers that we talk to on a weekly basis here on City Ringside. We don't just talk to wrestlers. We talk to referees. We talk to announcers. We talk to ring announcers. We talk to production people, promoters, to try to get their perspective of sitting ringside themselves and uh so without further ado let's talk to longtime wcw and wwe referee mickey J. ladies and gentlemen my guest this week on city ringside took a very similar journey uh in his career that i did uh got to live his dream in wcw uh saw the ups and the downs and uh was uh part of the uh, sale of the company, and uh, so we're going to talk to Mickey J, longtime referee uh, in the Florida Territory, World Championship Wrestling, of course. And then he, you did, Mickey J, end up going to WWE. Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, later, but um, I wanted to talk about how you got involved in professional wrestling. Uh, I'm assuming you were a fan growing up. Um, yes, yeah, I was. Uh, my grandfather took me uh, to my first wrestling shows uh back up in moline illinois which was the old uh awa territory so um you know i grew up watching the crusher and the bruiser and nick bockwinkle and ray stevens and of course bobby heenan was the was the heel manager at the time and um you know grew up watching him and then of course later on in life got to actually know Bobby and work with him and uh um we became very good friends. So that that was uh that was a big big highlight of my life for sure. 
I knew that part, and I was going to say, even though uh, it's not the chronological order that uh, we usually do, I was going to jump around and say, because I knew I was very tight with Bobby, and I know you're very tight with Bobby, and we both grew up watching him. And, and uh, you know, at one point in, when I was in college, he was in my list. Uh, I always have a list of, like, the top three people I'd like to have a cocktail with. Uh, and he was, like, number one for the longest time, and I got to have many. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I'm sure it was a thrill for you too. And I'm sure you miss him as much as I do, if not more. Well, absolutely. Uh, there was only one Bobby Heenan, you know, he was, uh, he was, uh, one of the, one of the best, uh, performers that has ever been in this business. I mean, he could do it all, you know, he could manage, he could wrestle, he could talk and he, he knew all he had to do, you know, was a little gesture and he could get the crowd riled up and, and that's the name of the game, you know, either make them love you or hate you. So it definitely was no, no one as good as Bobby Heenan. That's for sure. Any Bobby Heenan stories from your time working together and being, uh, getting to know him in WCW? Well, I mean, you know, I really didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. Um, um, you know, as, as they, as you, you well know that, you know, the, the different meetings that we would have with production and everything. And I mean, I, I remember a couple of times that I, I would be sitting in those production meetings and be sitting close to Bobby and he was either dialing someone's cell phone to make it ring in the middle of the meeting or, you know, he, <laughs> he was, he was definitely a jokester. And, oh, for um, sure. It was, uh, you know, it was kind of hard just to, to to maintain silence when you seen Bobby was up to something because you knew uh, you knew he was going to make people laugh. So, um, like I say, I just uh, I just cherish the time that I that I had with Bobby and um, and I still stay in touch with uh, Cindy, his wife, and of course uh, his daughter Jessica, who lives there and. I think in Largo, right outside yeah. of uh, Tampa, St. Pete, yeah. someplace there. My two favorite stories that come to mind are actually from the same uh, situation. My wife, when we uh, lived in Tampa, threw me a birthday party and invited a lot of the wrestlers, wrestling people. And Bobby came with Cindy, and um, they brought me as a gift a wandering Jew plant. I mean, who would think, because I'm Jewish, obviously, but who would think that there, there's just nobody else other than Bobby the Brain Heenan who would think, to, to bring a wandering Jew and he didn't mean it. God, God, I hate to even say this in the times we live in, but he didn't mean, he meant it as a joke and we all laughed about it. It certainly wasn't an insult. Oh, absolutely. Way. And absolutely. then, and then during the party, Joe Gomez said to him, Hey, Bobby, you gotta, gotta uh, hook up for lunch sometime. I'll buy. And without missing a beat and without missing a second, he looked up at Joe and said, how about you just give me $20 and we break, make it even. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that was one of Bobby's favorite lines is you won't offend me with cash. Yeah. And that's that's that was that was for sure. But And uh, I mean that was just that was just, you know, that was just a party at our house and they didn't even stay very long, but uh but uh I was honored that he came and um and yeah, but you know I, you know, I remember at one point there was an announcer's trailer and you know, all the I I've looked back about you know, and think about the fact that I sat in a trailer and got to listen to uh, Larry Zabisco, uh, Tony Schiavone, Gene Okerlund, Bobby Heenan, Mike Tenay, Lee Marshall, uh, among others, tell stories. And, 
God, you know, people would like, you know, the, you have all these auctions for, you know, fantasy camps. How many people would pay, you know, I mean, you'd have wealthy people paying six figures for an opportunity to be in a fantasy camp like that. And I actually got paid to do it. But back well, to you. Back to you. You got me. You mentioned Bobby Heenan. You got me off track because he's one of my favorite people and I miss him dearly. Him and me and Gene both. Yes, sir. Yes, so, sir. So you're in a. Uh, you're in Moline. You're watching the AWA. At some point, you make your way down to Florida. Um, what 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 time? When was that? Um, well, I I uh, actually came down. I um, had met uh, Steve Kern um, when he was up in the AWA uh, with the fabulous ones, and um, I uh, used to go and get him at the airport and would drive him to the shows and. And then, of course, you know, to the television studio afterwards to do interviews and then back to the uh, the little private plane the AWA had. And um, I got to know Steve pretty well. And he he told me, he said, well, he says, Mick, he goes, I won't see you for a while. He says, we're leaving the territory and going to Tennessee. And he told me, he said they were going to be there a couple, couple three months. And uh, then he was going back to uh, Tampa. And he asked me, he says, have you ever been to Florida? And I said, well, I went, went and uh, spent a summer with my uh, uncle who owned a um, snack bar right on the boardwalk in Jacksonville Beach. And um, I said, but that was the only experience that I had had in Florida. And he says, well, he says, you know, instead of sitting up here and shoveling snow and freezing to death. He says, when I get to Florida, he says, I'll get a hold of you. And why don't you come down? And I'm of course, in my mind thinking, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll never hear from you again. And, uh, but well, and behold, he did. He called me and I, um, at the time I was, uh, working for the high school that I went to. Um, I always joke. It took me forever to graduate. I graduated <laughs> in 79 and went right to work for the high school and, and back in the latter part of 79, I was a custodian and I was making uh, $10 and 31 cents an hour with full benefits. And back in 79, that was pretty good. Sure. And, um, so anyway, uh, long story short, I planned a, uh, week's vacation in uh, Tampa and I flew down and I believe I was there three days and uh, changed my uh, ticket, went back early, quit my job, packed everything I had. And uh, I came down to Tampa and, uh, and then of course, when I first got there, I did numerous things. I worked for Stanley steamer carpet cleaners and um, did a lot of little odd jobs. And then, uh, uh, once the uh, Florida office was bought out by the Crockett's, um, so there basically was no wrestling in Tampa for a, for a short period. And then um, Mike Graham, and Steve, and Gordon Soley uh, opened up Florida Championship Wrestling. And basically, Steve told me, he says, we need a referee. And uh, I kind of got just thrown right into the fire. Um, I really had no formal training. I had watched everything for years and, uh, but I was, I was blessed to be able to work with, uh, you know, with people that taught me, you know, 
everything. Um, Mike Graham and uh, Steve, of course, and and then Dusty, Dusty Rhodes came in, and um, Dick Slater, and guys like that that I just uh, was very blessed to be associated with. And uh, um, kind of like I say, just kind of got thrown into the fire and learned as I went. And uh, it was definitely a, a very educational part of my life. For sure. Was there ever any thought or discussion with Steve that, you know, we're going to make you a referee or was it just like a split in the moment? I need somebody I could trust and Mickey's a good friend. And so we'll throw him in there. Well, it was, yeah, it was kind of just, uh, you know, when he, he told me that they were, uh, they were going to open up and, um, you know, so he told me, he says, go, go get a striped shirt. So I was like, okay, well, so, uh, and it, you know, and like I say, I just, uh, I don't know. I kind of, kind of naturally, you just fell into the groove. And of course I, I've made a lot of mistakes and I still do to this day, but, um, uh, like I say, these, the opportunity of working with those guys back then that were so talented. Um, and you know, that's back when, you know, guys could really work. I mean, you know, they could tell a story and, um, everything wasn't just constant high spot, high spot, high spot. Um, they had the, you know, had the crowd involved and, uh, they always told the story, uh, when they went out and, um, you know, like I say, I just was very blessed to, have, and of course be around dusty, who was one of the greatest, uh, teachers ever. And, um, in fact, I, uh, I refereed Dustin, his son, who's been gold dust and, whatever he's calling himself now, uh, in AEW, but I, I refereed his very first ever wrestling match. Wow. So, I was going to ask you about Dustin cause I know he started in that territory. So you got a green yes. ref, you got a green referee and a green, uh, Dustin Rhodes. Who, who did they curious if you remember who they put them in, uh, put him in there with to sort of, you know, uh, uh, settle them down. You know, I, I want to, I almost want to say it was Bob Cook, but I'm not positive on that. Um, oh, that. That makes sense. Bob was a trust, a good hand. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wanna, I wanna almost say it was in in, in uh, Inverness, is where I believe that first match was. But I do remember uh, before they opened the doors that I was in the ring, and I can't even remember what Dustin was going to use for his uh, for his finishing maneuver. But it was it was some some sort of little small bump, and I remember taking that about fifty times before the got in the ring with him because he was so nervous, um, you know, before the uh, before the doors opened. But I remember taking that a lot. So back in the heyday, uh, uh, championship wrestling from Florida had a pretty rigid schedule. Other than the weekends, were usually spot shows. Uh, Monday in West Palm Beach, Tuesday in Tampa, uh, Wednesday Miami Beach, Thursday Jacksonville, Friday uh, was split towns between Tallahassee and Fort Lauderdale, and then uh, Sunday was the uh, was the uh, Eddie Graham Sports Stadium in Orlando. Uh, did you guys have that? kind of I, I kind of stopped watching at that point did you guys have that kind of schedule when you guys came back or did you just kind of do spot shows the whole time or was it a weekly circuit well it was it was pretty much um it wasn't an everyday thing especially in the beginning um but i know we did do 
Tampa every week, and we did every Sunday at the uh, Eddie Graham Sports Complex, which, um, you know, was uh, one of the first places that I ever met and got to work with Kevin Sullivan and Blackjack Mulligan. Um, you know, it was... Uh, it, it, it was it was one of those things that we were we did spot shows, but we you know Florida being the territory it was, you could always, in other words, you were home every night. You were back in Tampa, no matter if you were in Tallahassee or in Jacksonville or Miami or Lauderdale. But you could you know, and that was that was another big learning part of the business for me was the road trips, riding with the guys down the highway. Um, you know, and just the stories they told, like you say, just kind of the fly on the wall and, uh, just tried to take it in as best, uh, you know, the knowledge as best as I could. And I learned an awful lot from those guys. Yeah. I, I liken this podcast actually to, uh, to my time, uh, doing exactly that Listen, I've said this several times where, you know, you're driving down the road with guys and there is no uh, cell phones and there was no satellite radio. And so all you had was uh, AM uh, radio music or we could tell stories and talk about our careers. And, you know, when you first break in, like you said, you just sit there and you soak it up and uh, and you look back and you forget how entertaining and, and how much knowledge that you learned uh, in those trips. Any, it, do you have, um, assuming you drove with Steve uh, most of the time? Um, yep, quite a bit, quite a bit. And, of course, then uh... – not only was uh, I, the ref- I was the referee, but I was also driving the ring truck and set the ring up. So a lot of times I would, of course, be the first one to the building and the one and the last one to leave because, you know, you had to set the ring up and make sure everything was set to go for the show. And, you know, it was kind of funny, too. There would always be, be uh, guys around, like fans that wanted to help you know, get them into the show for free. They'd help set the ring up. But once that show was over, they were nowhere. To be seen. <laughs> hey, I did that at sunrise musical theater for about a year for Gordon Nelson in eight, uh, 83, 84. And, uh, yeah, you know, he would say, you know, if you want to get into the show for free, um, you know, you, you could help do the ring. But, yeah, as soon as the show was over, I was backstage, not backstage, but back by the cars where the talent came out, trying to, you know, see if I could get an autograph or get a, a photo op. Yeah, no, Gordon didn't have much help afterwards, and I'm, I, I'm sure with you too. But, uh, but, yeah, it was a great way to get into the show, and it was a great way to meet some of the guys. Hey, um, at what point did you end up going to uh, WCW? How would that come about? Well, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I Good, was we like those. Uh, well, I was out of the out of the business and and uh, down in Key West, and uh, there was a Nitro in Tampa that um, I on a Monday that I had drove up uh, just to see everybody. I hadn't seen guys in a long time, and. And uh, long story short, um, it was the Nitro year, the number I couldn't tell you, but it was uh, where they did an angle where Eric Bischoff fired Jimmy Jets, who was a referee. It was an on-air, on-air skit where they fired him. And I wound up going to, uh, it was the television hotel, I want to say it was right down off of West Shore by the airport, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. Um, 
Oh, God, I can't think. Of, I, there was a Don Shula Steakhouse in there. I can't think of the name. Yeah, yeah. But I remember being in the uh, being in the bar afterwards, and um, Randy Anderson, Kiwi Anderson, walked up to me, and he said, he said, Kevin wants me to ask you, and meaning Kevin Sullivan, he said, if you would like a, if you'd like to have a tryout as a referee tomorrow. And of course my jaw hit the, hit the floor. And, and I said, well, well, absolutely. I said, well, what, what do I need to do? And he told me, he says, well, he says, you got to go get black pants, blue shirt, black bow tie. And he looked at me and he said, and how fond of you are you of your hair? Are you? Cause I had hair that was pretty long. It was past my, past my shoulders. Oh. And I was like, eh, not that fun. So the next <laughs> morning I went and found a super cuts or, or whatever it was called at the time in Tampa and almost cried as the girl cut all my hair off. And, and, uh, then I headed down, uh, jumped in the car and headed down to Bradenton, which is just, uh, over the skyway bridge, just South of Tampa there. And they were doing the, um, the Tuesday tapings, which I believe was taped for Saturday night, the Saturday night show on TBS. Right. But my very first, uh, and you were a big part of that rib on me. My first night, I do remember that, uh, I'd never worn an earpiece before. So that was brand new to me. And of course, Jody Hamilton, uh, Father Nick Patrick was on the other end of, of uh, my earpiece. And that's what I was listening to. And I remember they uh, they gave me two matches and went through what was going to go on in the finishes. And I was so nervous getting ready to go out. And right before they sent me through the curtain, Pee Wee walks up to me and he says, Oh, by the way, he says, if we would need you to go to San Francisco this weekend for the pay-per-view, could you go? And I was like, uh, oh, yeah. Okay, go, go. And they shoved me out through the curtain. Well, I remember walking to the ring, and you're standing in there, wait, of course, waiting to announce it. And uh, they sent a wrestler down, and it was not one of the matches they had given me. And I looked at you, I remember, and I walked over to you, and I said, I think I screwed up. I said, this is one. And all you said was, too late now, and turn your back on me. <laughs> I swear I don't remember that, but I'm sorry. Oh, geez. my God. And I was just, I was froze now. I had forgotten everything. Of course, it wasn't even one of the matches they told me I had. But thank goodness, I do remember that the second guy that came out was Ray Mysterio Jr., and I said, well, I know he wins on TV, so I guess I'll just call it the way I see it. And that's exactly what I did. And, of course, made it through. And the second match they sent out was actually one that they told me I was going to have. And um, once I walked back through the curtain after that, they said, we're going to go ahead and take you to San Francisco, which kind of is, was a, a funny story because I – of course, jumped in the car and headed back to Key West. I was working at Sloppy Joe's Bar at the time. I had been the head bar back there for well over four years. And uh, I walked in and I told them, I said, um, I have to quit. I said, I got hired. I'm, I'm going on the road with the wrestling company. 
And uh, the manager, Sloppy Joe's at the time, Kevin, who's still a good friend of mine, said, uh, oh, you can't do that. And I said, <laughs> you didn't hear me, Kevin. I said, I quit. And he said, no, no. He said, we're going to just give you a leave of absence. He says, in case something doesn't work out, he said, you can walk right back in, in the position that you are instead of starting over from the get-go. So that was very nice of them. But knock on wood, I never did go back to Sloppy Joe's in a uh, working capacity. I've been in there and had a few libations, but um, not in a working capacity. So it all worked out pretty well. So um, just just to clear something up, um, and and I know you know this, but people probably at home that are listening are saying – how do you work? How do you work fire a referee? You know, because when Mickey, uh, when you they fired Jimmy Jet, you said it was a, a work, which it was. He didn't really get fired. Just so people understand, he would he would do the Disney tapings when we were in Disney, and uh, and he would do Florida, and then but he managed a hotel, so he never he couldn't go on the road. He wouldn't go on the road. He was he was making too much money, and he had a family. So when they said, just so people understand, when they say it was a work, they fired him knowing that he probably wasn't going to come back until the next time we were in Florida. So that, that was right. how that happened. So, um, so who was in charge of the referees back then? Was it Jody Hamilton? Well, pretty much. I mean, Jody was the, you know, the go-to guy that, um, he, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, Jerry Briscoe was, um, up in WWE. He was, you know, the one that you would be listening to on the other end of your, uh, earpiece but i mean you know as far as um the assignments and all that when i first got there it was all done by uh randy anderson by peewee and of course uh, uh mark curtis was there at the time brian hildebrand um and of course nick patrick so so uh i learned a lot from those guys because they're all they were all uh very experienced and uh had been doing it a lot longer than I had. So I was, again, blessed to been able to be around such good talent that uh, some of it just kind of rubbed off on me. Any, any famous matches that you, uh, could, that remember that you remember to this day that you got to officiate main events of major pay-per-views maybe? Well, I'll tell you, I just been, uh, been so bored here, not doing a whole lot of anything. Um, in the last couple of months, um, I've been watching a lot of the uh, old pay-per-views on the WWE Network, and um, I just watched uh, Road Wild that we did in Sturgis. Um, God, I want to say it was either 98 or 99. I just watched that the other day, and, and you know, just some of the talent that was on there, it was phenomenal, and, and the sad part is there's so many of them that aren't with us anymore. Yep. And, um, you know, but I mean, just the, just being able to, to go to places and towns that I never dreamed that I would get to, um, you know, and just pretty much like throwing, Hey, you're in this place now and then next week you're going to be here. And it was like, Holy cow. So just getting in a car and Back in the day, actually, a map before they had a GPS or anything yep. like that, and trying to read the map and find where you were going. But I think I think I pretty much have been in almost every major town in this country, and um, 
was very blessed to be able to be part of it. Yep, they uh, that we had to use the map and to get to the, into the town, and then if you hadn't been in the town before, if you uh, then you had to stop at a gas station once you got there, and they would give you directions. You write it down to where the uh, the arena was. You go to the arena, and then somebody would find you know figure out a hotel that was given a good rate so get directions to that totally different world my friend uh but uh, who who's who are your go-to uh driving buddies did you have any or just kind of just uh uh picked and choose well yeah well I, I wrote a lot with uh nick patrick um in wcw because you know we got along really well and and uh you know, we rode a lot together. Um, uh, a little later on, uh, Scott Armstrong and I rode a lot, uh, but that of course was WWE days. And then, and then early when I first started, like I said, I was driving the ring truck. So I would have certain guys that, you know, either wanted to save trans on getting to a town or, or whatever would jump in with me that didn't mind being the first one to the building and the last one to leave. And, Wrote a lot with uh, Jimmy Backlund, or I guess later he was known as Jimmy Del Rey. It was his uh, was his biggest uh, uh, part in the in the business that he had when he was part of the Heavenly Bodies with uh, Doctor Tom Pritchard and Jimmy Cornette. Um, wrote a lot with Jimmy, and um, you know learned a lot from him too. He was one of the one of the best little uh, I guess you would say enhancement workers at the time. Um, but he could make you look like a million dollars, you know? And, um, for sure. So you, you, you remember, I mean, it's no secret. WCW was a major drama, you know, then the more popular it got, the worse the drama got. Uh, how, how, how were you able to keep yourself out of that? Uh, did you ever, I know that, you know, Nick Patrick was the second guest we ever had on this podcast two and a half years ago. And he told the story for the first time of the position he was put in with the sting Hogan finish with this, you know, one person telling him to count fast and the other person telling him to count slow. And, uh, uh, do you ever have any situations like that where they tried to drag you in? And if so, what were they and how were you able to figure it out? So you didn't get fired. Cause obviously you were there till the end. Yep. No, um, knock on wood. I was never put into one of those kinds of positions. Uh, you know, I, I had heard of, of other things, you know, where, you know, the referees were told one thing and the talent thought something else was going to happen. And like I say, just, uh, Thank the good Lord. I was never put into that position um, because, you know, that's kind of a catch 22, you know, do you, do you keep your job or do you, you know, or do you come up and just tell, tell a guy that you've been spending most of the year with on the road, what, what's going on and they're, they're going to screw you. And, you know, it was, like you say, the more toward the end it got, it was, I think the biggest problem there is there were, uh, you know, there was too many chiefs and not enough Indians. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for Just, sure. Uh, everybody, uh, everybody had their own little little factions and and groups that they hung around with, and and uh, it, you know, it had just uh, it had just gotten so bad. And of course, once they once they brought uh, Russo in, it was the beginning of the end. Ah, see, I was going to ask you about that because I, I'm very, very, um, 
I'm very, very vocal in my, and nothing personal. I always preface this by saying I, I don't have anything personal against Vince Russo. I hope he has a wonderful life. Uh, I, I was not a fan of his booking, and we've talked in recent weeks, uh, and I've talked on other podcasts, too, about how, you know, you'd go into a production meeting and, you know, he'd read the Judy Bagwell on a pole match and the, his the little, you know, his little uh, group of of uh, followers would kind of giggle. They thought it was funny. And, and I'd walk out of there going, what the heck is happening? And, you know, this is going to be a disaster. Did you have similar uh, thoughts? I'm assuming you did. I think we all rolled our eyes at each other a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I say, it was just, uh, I, I really don't, you know, he, he basically had the mindset that you get, you know, you guys, I could get anybody come in here and do this, you, you know, wrestlers, I can get anybody come in here and be an actor and do this and do that. And it was just, uh, you know, if, if he just, he brushed me wrong. Um, just his, uh, just there's arrogance that he had, um, you know, holier than thou. And, uh, and like I say, and like you, you know, you just said some of his ideas, a lot of people were rolling their eyes and it oh, was, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, and it was, uh, I remember Bret Hart telling me one time backstage, once he came to WCW, I was, I was just kind of standing somewhere backstage and, Brett walked by and I was like in a daze, I was staring off in the distance and he says, you all right? And I looked at him. I said, Oh yeah. I said, I'm just trying to figure out what they want want to happen here. And he laughed and he said, well, at least you're on the right team. And he walked away. So that told me a lot right there. You know, um, I don't know. He was just, uh, he was definitely the beginning of the end. Yeah. Did you see an end or were you, were you surprised when, uh, I, I was very shocked when the company went under in the fashion that it did and in the quickness that it did. Looking back, I shouldn't have been. There were so many signs that people were given and that uh, were out there. Uh, and and but but I guess I was blind to them because I wanted the best to happen. Were you surprised? Were you shocked when you figured found out? Boom! Last nitro, you're done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think everybody was. Um, you know, and of course. They they kept it under wraps pretty good because we didn't find out until we got to the show, um, which was there in Panama City, and uh, of course you know we we didn't know you know if we were even going to still have a job that night because we heard they were coming in to take over and you know and it was just uh, and it was just one of those things where you know they did have the the meeting. Uh, Shane McMahon and Jerry Briscoe, and I believe it was, uh, um, oh my God, Bruce Pritchard. Uh, Bruce, thank you, thank you. I'm I, all I can think of was Brother Love, but yes, Bruce Pritchard. And um, you know, they they had a little meeting. They told everybody, you know, well, you know, you're welcome, and if you you know want to be with us, would you know, be glad? But of course, they didn't take uh, they didn't take me, so. Uh, again, I was back out of the wrestling business and, um, and back to Key West and, you know, and I've, uh, I've been here ever since and I'm still here, knock on wood. And that's, uh, you know, I was diagnosed in 2008 and the doctor with uh, mantle cell lymphoma and the doctor down here told me, he said, you have about six months. Get your, Oh, I never knew it. that. I knew oh, you. Yeah. Were, I knew you had cancer. I never knew that they had told you. Oh my God! I'm glad I didn't know. Jeez. 
Um, yeah, well, that how, was how, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. How do you do? How, how do you deal with? Obviously, it didn't happen, but you didn't know that. How do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, I, I like to think that if somebody told me that, I'd be uh, uh, crawled up in a fetal position on my couch with a bottle of vodka. Um, but but people do go. You know, you look at people like Alex Trebek, who you know who who's still around, but you know it's it's a matter of of you know God barring a miracle. It's a matter of when, not if. Uh, how, how do you, you know, you beat it, thank God, but how do you deal when somebody tells you that? How, what, how, how, is there like some, like adrenaline that comes through you that keeps you going? Cause I've often wondered that. Well, you know, um, it's kind of a, kind of a funny, funny thing because I was, uh, on a full schedule with WWE and, um, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, to do a pay-per-view when the uh, WWE doctor, I had a lump come up on the side of my jaw and he says, Oh, right away. He says that, that looks to me like cancer. And of course my heart dropped and, you know, he said, go get that checked right away. So of course being in Cleveland, I didn't know a soul in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, so I, you know, all I could think of was, well, I jumped in the car and, um, of course, with no medical insurance or anything like that. And uh, they told me, they said, well, if you go to Cook County Hospital in Chicago, he said, they'll they'll take you without insurance. So that's where I went and and, uh, and drove straight, uh, straight to Chicago. And I remember going into the emergency room and they did a preliminary, uh, preliminary blood test and said, yes, it has come back uh, positive for lymphoma. So he says, we're going to go ahead and admit you. And I said, oh, no, you're not. And, of course, you know, I'm not going to be stuck in Chicago. And being from uh, the Quad I could, Cities. I could think of, I could think of worst, worst case places to be stuck, but I understand the sentiment. Oh, yeah. Well, I was only only 160 miles away from where my mom was in uh, Rock Island. So. Of course, that's where I went and uh, told her the news and everything, and and um, she uh, she actually just get, went with me, and we got in the car and drove back to to Key West. And um, of course, then when I got down here and seen the doctor here, and and you know, go back to your question, how did I deal with it? Uh, I was in total shock. Um, and almost not denial, but, you know, I just didn't know what I was going to do because I was on the road constantly, um, 280 plus days a year. And I went, went from that to absolutely nothing. Um, and I just, I was going out of my mind and then I'll tell you who was really one of the, one of the biggest, uh, influences for me was Bobby Heenan again. Um, because I looked at it, well, I got two choices. I can either curl up in the ball and give up, or I can fight this and do everything that I can. And that's what I decided to do. And, you know, knock on wood. I mean, I, I haven't beaten it. I'm, I'm going to fight it for the rest of my life, but, um, I have been in remission for going on six years now. God, so God bless. You know, it's uh, it's a tough thing, but it's still, I mean, you know, I still make the trek every other month from Key West up to Tampa for a, 
a maintenance treatment, what they call it, that I get a, I get a two-hour uh, <clears throat> drip of chemotherapy every every other month, and then of course I'm on a I'm on a pill that I eat every day. It's, it's just a wonder drug called Imbruvica, and it's actually for leukemia patients and mantle cell lymphoma, which is the form of lymphoma that I have, which, of course, the doctor told me is there's like 40 different kinds of lymphoma, and mantle cell is the rarest wow. form of them all. And I said, well, of course, you know. <laughs> well, I don't mean to laugh, but yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, so like I say, it's uh, it, it's something that I will uh, I will fight for the rest of my life, but like I say, uh, given the given the extinction date of six months in September of 2008, the guy was off the mark a little bit. So. <laughs> thank, thank God, man. Hey, we skipped over WWE before we let you go. I wanted to just uh, ask you a couple of questions. Uh, how was that different than WCW? Uh, positive, negative? Uh, uh, oh, there's no comparison. Um, like I say, every there were so many... So many bosses or so many people that thought they were the boss or running things in WCW, different factions. In WWE, there's no mistake of who is in charge. There's one person, and that's Vince McMahon. Um, you know, you got a lot of other people below Vince that are in authority positions, but the buck stops with Vince. Everything goes through Vince, and Vince has his hand on everything that happens there. Um, I have never seen anyone who was so, I guess the word would be addicted to work and to, to what he does. Uh, he had his hand involved in everything. And everybody knew that, that there was one guy who was the, in charge and, you know, that being Vince. So, it was a lot easier on that aspect, and it was just much more, much more run everything, run professionally from travel to to the way television production was done. Um, just no comparison, really. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. Uh, did you ever have a run-in, good or bad, with Vince, or did you kind of stay out of his way? <laughs> Well, yeah, I, uh, one of the last things you ever want to see happen is when you walk back through the curtain, this Vince wagging his finger at you to come here. Yeah, and, I, can't even uh, I can't even imagine. Oh, it happened to me in uh, San Diego uh, again at a pay-per-view, and I was sent out to do the dark match, which is on you know, to warm the crowd up. Right. And um, I don't even remember who was in it, but uh, uh, I know the, the finish was supposed to be um, a big move, boom. And I went down and went one, two, and the guy just rolled his shoulder completely off the mat, and I hit three anyway and rang the bell. And Of course, when I walked back through the curtain, the first thing I seen was Dean Malenko standing there, and he goes, Vince wants to see you. And I said, oh. Those and are probably five in. words. That was probably five words nobody wants to hear when they work there. Oh my gosh! And Vince just looked at me and he said, "You just blew the credibility of this business." And of course, all I could do was bow my head and I'm so sorry. It'll never happen again. And 
You know, and then the, the more I thought about it, it's like I blew the credibility. <laughs> but, you know, of course, you weren't going to say anything like that to Vince and not still have a job. So um, that was the that was the worst run in I ever had with him. Yeah. So did he, did, were you worried that you were going to get fired or did he say, all right, you know, you're OK, just don't do it again or anything like that? Or do you, well, have, to walk, no. you have to walk around for a couple of weeks wondering if you're going to get a phone call? Well, it wasn't that. It's just that I knew I had heat with him, and uh, I just kind of tried to stay away from him for the next couple of weeks. So, but uh, you know, they say that uh, you know you're only as good as your last performance. So, um, you know, I made sure that uh, I never did that again. In fact, I um, a guy didn't roll his shoulder on a European tour. And um, he was it wasn't it wasn't the uh, the ending the pre-planned ending, and uh, he took a took a harsh bump down, and he didn't roll his shoulder. I countered him out, and then of course the report got back to Vince. Um, what happened? And I got a thousand dollar bonus for doing that. So, wow! Yeah, so it was like both ends of the spectrum, you know. It was like well. I guess I'd rather try to make him happy than make him mad. There you go. Uh, yeah, I've never actually met Vince McMahon, but I can remember for like the first three or four years in WCW, I hid from Eric Bischoff. If he was walking one way, I walked the opposite way. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. And when just recently, actually, and he actually mentioned it on his podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, but just recently, we've I've gotten to know him and and on some indie shows, some conventions and stuff, and um, and had a few drinks with him and and uh, super guy actually, and really enjoy his company. But I was so intimidated by him back in the day. Uh, I can't even imagine how uh, Vince McMahon would be. Uh, probably, you know, there's probably God's. There's probably a reason why I never worked there because. Uh, uh, I probably probably would have lost my ever loving mind, but um, it's all good. Uh, did WWE keep you on for a little while after the cancer? Or they just, just let you go. Yeah, they were very very good to me. Um, uh, they they paid me and kept me uh, on the payroll for almost four months after I was diagnosed, which they didn't have to do at all. And then of course, you know, they finally uh, finally let me go. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was, like I say, they, they didn't have to do what they did. And I was, I was very thankful because like I say, at the time I was, uh, actually, um, back up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, because my friend, uh, Tony Bacho, who I had met, uh, years prior down here at Sloppy Joe's, he was the sound guy and the, uh, guitar tech and everything for, uh, performer Pat Daly, who played at Sloppy Joe's all the time. He's from Northern Ohio. And uh, Botch, uh, when he found out that I was diagnosed, he told me, he said, well, I'm going to come down there and come fishing with you for a couple days. And I was like, yeah, okay. And he flew down and he told me, he says, we're packing your truck and you and I are going back to Cleveland. And he's the one who got me into Cleveland Clinic. Um, Wow. Through through a friend who knew a doctor there and um, saved my life basically because uh, that's where I first got uh, the initial treatment that I had and um, spent uh, almost two and a half years uh, with Bacho in Cleveland living in his house and 
entertainment was looking out a little window at the snow and going to the grocery store once a week. That was my kind of like the lockdown now. That's what I kind of feel yeah, kinda, on that. Kinda, you kind of had a preview to, uh, to to what life is now in 2020 for almost everybody. That's yeah, crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, I know absolutely. you like. I know you like to go fishing. Uh, uh, what's the biggest fish you ever caught? Yeah, well, um, gee, I don't know. I guess. I guess I. I, I know when I was really little, I, had, I caught a three-pound walleye, which was I was only about five or six years old. So that I still have a picture of that. But um, I'm, you know, I mean, being down here, I just have a, a little small boat that I I can't go out in the middle of the ocean or do the deep sea stuff. So. I just get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of snapper and, and, um, stuff in the, what they call the back country here, but it's good eating. It's, uh, you know, fresh fish and can't beat fresh fish. So I did have uh, Steve Kern down here on my boat one time and he looked at, we're guessing it was about a 13 foot nurse shark that he wow. fought for about 45 minutes. And I do have pictures of that too. So. Um, I guess that was the biggest one we ever, I don't really want to say landed. We got it up to the boat and looked at each other and said, well, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> and it's like, well, let's cut the line. And I said, there you go. And that's what we did. So, Hey, last, qu- uh, last question. Did, uh, do you ever get to, um, I'm going to assume you got to re- referee WrestleManias. Uh, if so, which ones and how, how big were the crowds? Were they st- at stadiums yet at that point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was, uh, I worked on the uh, Detroit uh, Ford Field WrestleMania, which was the one that Donald Trump and Vince had their hair versus hair. Um, I refereed uh, MVP against Chris Benoit for the uh, United States Championship on that show. And then uh, the WrestleMania, I believe it was 22, maybe, that was in Chicago. Um, I refereed the the hardcore match between McFoley and Edge, where they oh, wow. went That's a through classic. the table on fire and all of that good stuff. So wow. I always like to do hardcore matches because there wasn't a whole lot for me to remember. Just stay out of the way in the finish, <laughs> you know. So. How is it? We worked a lot of big buildings at the heyday of WCW domes and stuff, but how is it to work a WrestleMania? I never got to do that. It's probably the one thing that I regret in, in a career of uh, very little regrets. Uh, what, 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 what's that like? What's the energy? Uh, it's, it, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming when you realize how many people you're in front of and, and uh, just watching the the inner workings of of WrestleMania, as far as the you know, as far as the merchandise guys, what they do to set up all of their stuff, what the production people do, it's just unbelievable. And I was uh, I was lucky enough. I worked uh, with uh, uh, Tony Chimmel, who's a pretty good friend of mine in the production. Uh, end of WWE and I worked as his gopher uh, for the WrestleMania they had in Orlando um, a few years back and just being able, just being able to be backstage and, and uh, the camaraderie with the boys. That's, that's what I miss the most about the business is not, it's not the stress and the, 
and the actual in-ring stuff. It, it, it's the camaraderie, the travel with the boys, um, the stories, the good times that we all had. Uh, and that's what I miss the most. Yeah, me and you both. Hey, uh, uh, speaking of stories, thank you for telling yours on City Ringside. And um, and uh, stay healthy. And uh, I, I didn't know that you had six months to live, but I'm very happy that that doctor was very wrong. So God bless you and a great talking to you. And uh, hopefully once this whole craziness is over, we can catch up next time you're in Tampa. That sounds like a plan. Thanks, David, for the opportunity. And I, I appreciate everything. want to thank Mickey J and uh, like I said, wish him great health and uh, was not aware that he, at one point he was given six months to live on a personal note of being friends with him. That horrifies me. And I'm so glad that it ended up being wrong on a, uh, on an even more personal note. It just, it, I, I don't understand how people deal with stuff like that. I really hope knock, 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 knock on wood that I am lucky enough to ever have a good diagnosis. And if I am, then, I'll be back here each and every Monday until uh, I draw my last breath, God forbid, letting you know how I did it. Because I guess you got to you gotta keep on moving or give up. And giving up is not the answer. Uh, hey, want to remind you to uh, follow me on Twitter, at David Penzer, all one word. Looking forward next week to having another big guest here on the City Ringside Podcast. Thank you so much for uh, your support and for downloading. If you don't download... Be sure to subscribe, uh, download, spread the word, tell your friends and neighbors, and let people know what we're doing here. Just trying to entertain, take about an hour or so a week off of the craziness that is 2020, and uh, hear some wrestling stories that you might find interesting. Until next time, I'm still City Ringside. See you next week. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a place for my head quick fix on Radio Influence. You guys might know him from Puddle of Mud. You might know him from Operator. You might know him from Rev Theory. He's one hell of a guitarist, one hell of a songwriter. His name is Paul Phillips. I don't want to say that, you know, I, I had it as bad as some people. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't even have it as bad as Wes. Like I said, you know, he, he wanted that stuff. So he, he kind of seeked it out and didn't mind it, you know. But, you know, you know, that's what brought the drinking on for me because um, it was actually when I left Puddle the first time and, and went to Operator, that's when I really kind of amped my my drinking up and and kind of that allowed me to kind of get into a, a mindset of okay punch in your time clock okay put on your little silly rock star costume go up there and jump like a monkey look at all the people you know make <laughs> your rock star faces get off stage shake hands sign autographs you know and then i would be the life of the party at the after party you know that's when i started meeting like all my heroes you know and the problem was, is, you know, that it, it didn't stop kind of when I, I got off the road, you know, I would come home. And, and like you said, with the like social anxiety, but it's just like if you kind of if you have like a broken leg, you know, and it's and you're on crutches and then your leg heals, but you keep using those crutches and you keep walking, then your leg is never going to get stronger. And eventually you're just 
ever going to be walking on your own because you're so used to walking on crutches, you know? So your muscles that allow your leg to walk are going to be completely gone, you know? So that's kind of the analogy. It's like it works in the beginning and then it turns you on you. I don't know how many books I've read, like autobiographies or behind the musics or or whatever. Me too, man. You know, where you, where you hear people say basically that it's like things work in the beginning, you know, it was, sex drugs and rock and roll then it was sex and drugs then it was just drugs <laughs> yeah you know yeah. So i was just about to say that yeah it has a way of sneaking up on you a place for my head with brandon thompson and jerry p tuck can be found on apple podcasts stitcher tune in radio google podcasts and radioinfluence.com